0: never forget that feeling. I was 13. I'd started my first job planting tomatoes in a greenhouse. I'm riding my bike home after work on my yellow BMX. In between my teeth was a white envelope. That felt like the safest place for my first paycheck as I rode 12 blocks back to my house. I couldn't wait to open it up. I felt so rich. The truth is, I had that money spent before I was two blocks away from work. I'd been eyeing up the latest Karataka game for my Commodore 64. The sheer joy was palpable. So was the taste of business envelope number 10. I rode up my front lawn and I jumped off my bike and it just kept going until it crashed into the fence. It didn't matter. What I had in this white envelope was going to change everything. And the only thing greater than my joy was the sadness I felt realizing what deductions and taxes looked like for the first time in my life. It was a strange dichotomy, happy and sad at the same time. We've all experienced it. It's like coming home after a great holiday. You're sad it's over, but you can't wait to sleep in your own bed. Sadness and joy. We have the ability to experience two seemingly conflicting emotions at the same time. Like watching your brother poking a bruise on his arm over and over again saying, "ow," And when you finally ask why he's doing it, he says, I I don't know, it kind of feels good at the same time. Yet when I punch this bruise, he doesn't feel the same pleasure that I do. True story. Maybe you've experienced loving somebody, yet at the same time resenting them for the way they treat you. Or experiencing anger at the same time you're experiencing a strange peace. I know it sounds ridiculous. How is it that we can experience what seems like opposing things simultaneously? Perhaps the truth is maybe they aren't as opposing as we think, after all. You see, there's a word for this, ambivalent. Ambi is derived from the Latin meaning with both hands, and valent derived from the Latin meaning strong, holding two different ideas strongly. People often confuse ambivalence with ambiguity, but they're not the same thing. Ambiguity is when something is vague or unclear. Ambivalence is to have two very different strong feelings about something. I think it's a good word to describe how I feel about Easter. I mean, it's one of the most important holidays on the Christian calendar, yet I've always struggled with this season. Even as a child, I loved it and I hated it. I loved it because of that one-pound white chocolate Easter bunny at the foot of my bed on Easter morning. I hated it because of the dress pants and button-up shirt lying beside it. I loved it because of the big family dinner where all my siblings and their families would finally come home for that incredible Easter meal. One of only three turkeys that I would eat in an entire year. The smell of Easter lilies and wooden pews, candy, and red dye number 43. But I hated it because the stories about betrayal and deception as well as about love and sacrifice. The weight of Good Friday often hammered home as guilt, but for some of us, feeling more like shame. It was a message I never understood as a child and only pretended to understand as a young adult. I never brought it up in seminary. How do you talk about having a love-hate relationship with Easter when you're studying to be a pastor? But I'm happy to say that all these years later, I've come to terms with my ambivalence. The clarity came from the story itself. Not from me understanding the story differently. You see, I'm still ambivalent. And the reason I'm okay with it now is because I know I'm not alone. Jesus, on several occasions, tried to prepare his disciples for the events of what we call Passion Week, where he will be betrayed into the hands of those who will ultimately take his life. And Jesus will tell his closest friends about what was going to happen to him, and they wouldn't be able to comprehend it. And what parts they did comprehend, they will try and apprehend so they can change. It was too hard to swallow, even for those who knew him best. And saw and experienced who Jesus was, what he represented, what he was capable of. And as I think about my struggle with this story over the years, it wasn't that I didn't understand it. I think it's that I, understand it, I understood it all too well. So my problem wasn't ignorance. I think my problem was maybe perspective. You see, when we hold the Easter story in our hands, we have the privilege of time. We have a bird's eye view of 2,000 years looking back and unfortunately 2,000 feet looking down. We can find ourselves unintentionally being critical of the disciples for not trusting Jesus. We can be critical of Peter denying him three times and for hiding in fear after his death. We can find ourselves reading it, shaking our heads, thinking, come on, guys. He can walk on water. He can make a giant buffet from a kid's bag lunch. Get it together. And this is easy to do when you're reading the story from the clouds. But everything changes when you read it from the crowds. So this morning, as we begin this Easter series... Let's do it from the crowd, not from the cloud. Our greatest risk this morning isn't a paper cut, but being trampled by the multitudes of pilgrims making their way towards Jerusalem for one of the most important holidays of the Jewish year, Passover. Ancient historians record that Jerusalem will swell by hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people for this sacred holiday, and mixed with the presence Mixed with the increased number of pilgrims are the unusually large number of soldiers that will be present. This has historically been an uneasy Jewish holiday, celebrating emancipation from Egyptian slavery while currently being oppressed by the Romans. We're going to follow Jesus as he ascends for the final time towards Jerusalem. And we're not alone. A large crowd has gathered and joined us as we make this climb up 26,000 feet towards the city. And in the next six weeks, we're going to be staying here as we walk through the final six days that lead to Easter Sunday. So much happens during this Passion Week, from the time Jesus arrives at Jerusalem to the events of Easter Sunday. In fact, one-third of the gospel accounts take place during this final week of Jesus' life. 89 chapters in all the gospel biographies. And 29 of those chapters record the events and teachings that take place in these six days. And it all begins as Jesus makes his way on his final ascent into Jerusalem. And here's how Mark tells the story in chapter 10, verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And as Jesus was walking ahead of them, they were astonished. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the 12 again, He began to tell them about what was to happen. There it is. Did you hear it? Did you see it? The ambivalence. You have to be behind Jesus to see it. I think the problem, once again, with our 2,000-year retrospective is that we read the story. When we read the story, we aren't behind Jesus at all. We're ahead of him. We're already at Easter Sunday. We know how the story ends. But to understand the story, we have to be following. A lot of people don't like following because it makes them feel behind. But being behind is not the same as following. The crowds that are following Jesus are experiencing both the astonishment and the fear. The way Mark writes about this event, we don't know if it's the same people that are feeling both fear and astonishment or if it's just a description of how this crowd of people, there, are, there is this incredible diversity in how they're all feeling. Some are afraid, some are amazed. Who's right? Obviously, that's the wrong question. The only right way to feel about anything is to feel it honestly. You see, this is the moment for me that brings some clarity in my own ambivalence. I know that as I am following Jesus, I am both at the same time. And I'm okay admitting it. It's okay to not know how you feel about something that we read in Scripture. Do you know why? Because even those we're reading about didn't know how they felt. I mean, up to this point in the story, there's just so much that is incredible From Jesus' radical teaching on the stuff of life to the nature of his engagements with the marginalized and the powerful alike. This Jesus is astonishing. If you read it from the crowds and not the clouds, when Jesus speaks to the woman at the well, her intrigue is so infectious. When Jesus sets the man from Gerasene who lived in chains in a cemetery, you feel the relief in his freedom. When Jesus teaches that there's an alternative way to love those who hurt us, There's a more productive way to express our anger and our fear. There's a different way to hold wealth and scarcity. Man, it's revolutionary. He really is helping the blind to see, not just physically blind, but those who've been blind to the other kingdom that is breaking through right here, right now. So I get it. Jesus is astonishing. I have followed this Jesus close enough as the ancient Jewish blessing states to be covered in the dust of this rabbi. Maybe you have too yet I am filled with fear in this moment because I also know what we are capable of. The Easter story reminds us, it doesn't really surprise us, power is corrupting. And when power and religion come together, they have ugly children. Jesus models a completely new way to bring change. The new world he is ushering in seems upside down, counterintuitive and exciting. You see, what is interesting in that passage from Mark that I just read, the astonishment seems to be about Jesus, but the, you know, his divine love, his hope, all that he represents. And the fear seems to be about our humanity and our lust for power and violence. And those two opposing ideas come head to head in this story. And that clash will happen repeatedly over the next six days as the tension builds. Jesus, though, will be undaunted he will continue to be astonishing. You'll see. And I think that in order for us to understand the story well, we need to first admit that we most likely misunderstand it, to admit our ignorance, to find ourselves in the mixed crowd again. A couple of years ago, actually, quite a few years ago now, I went to the theater to watch the Easter movie, The Passion of the Christ. Now, most of us probably have seen that movie once. It's one of those movies kind of like Schindler's List. Everyone probably needs to see it, but once will probably do. It has a profound way of staying with you. And so as we're watching this movie, sitting in front of me is a group who were talking through the whole film. And I had a feeling that they were watching it to see what the hype was about. And they were making fun of it in certain parts and they they were quite annoying to, to be honest. But I noticed that as the film started getting closer and closer towards the end, it started getting pretty quiet in the theater, especially the row in front of me. See, it can be hard to watch in clear detail the brutality of death by crucifixion. I don't think the silence was just because of the graphic nature of what we're watching, but also because of how wrong it felt. The conspiracy of it, the brutality inflicted upon this astonishing Jesus And then in that pivotal scene when Jesus utters his last words, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he takes his last breath. You could hear a pin drop. And this young woman in front of me blurts out, What? He dies? You could hear gentle sobbing in the room. And this young woman, she wasn't being funny. She was the most honest in the room. She wasn't naive or ignorant. She just wasn't jumping ahead. She truly didn't know how this story was going to unfold. She hadn't grown up hearing it every Easter. She was experiencing it for the first time astonishment and fear. And I remember in that moment thinking, wow, she's watching this movie more honestly than I am. She was in the crowd, I was in the cloud. She was standing beside the disciples because that's exactly how they felt watching. What? He dies? It doesn't make sense. This isn't lack of faith. Sometimes you just don't know what you don't know. And we need each other in stories this big. We need those who are afraid to remind us that this isn't right. We need those who are astonished to remind us that anything can happen. One isn't the right response and the other inappropriate. These are two sides of the same coin, and faith is what moves us from one towards the other. Faith is about discovering that astonishment is greater than the unknown. Faith reminds us that we don't have to know everything to know something. So as we begin this Easter series together, you may be wondering, I don't know how I feel about this. You'd be in good company. You may be feeling that life is pretty messy and you need to get where Jesus is going and the only way is to follow. Don't run ahead. We need to remember that this isn't just about arriving. It's about who we're becoming on the journey. And as Jesus finally arrives just outside the city of Jerusalem, he tells a couple of his disciples to go and get a young donkey and bring it back so he can ride it into the city in an astonishing display of humility. And those watching will take off their coats and lay them on the road in front of them. Some will break branches off of the trees and lay them down on the road. Others will begin to sing, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of God. Blessed is the coming kingdom. It's astonishing. Easter isn't just a date on a calendar. It's part of the human experience. Love and hope don't just suddenly appear after fear is gone. The reason Jesus can tell his followers, to not be afraid is not because there's nothing to be afraid of. It's because we aren't alone in this human experience. And that astonishing news makes fear irrelevant.